0: This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with former senior U.S. intelligence officers and those who research and write about them. Today, we have a very interesting uh, guest uh, who actually appeared at an AFIO lunch in person back in 2015 and uh, gave a great presentation. And we thought for uh, our wider audience and for uh, people who couldn't make that lunch back in 2015, it'd be great to have him on. our program. His name is Brian Denson. excuse me, and um, he is a uh, journalist and author. He's uh, written for five different uh, U.S. newspapers, including the Oregonian and the Houston Post. He's a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and he is a winner of the uh, George Polk Award. Brian, welcome to AFIo now.
1: Thank you for having me, in, Jim.
0: Um, Brian, you have a book out. It's been out for years now, but it's a very interesting book about um, U.S. espionage, about treachery. Um, You were a first-time spy writer. Um, How did this uh, story come across your transom?
1: So, yeah, this really was my first cut. Um, I was working at the Oregonian newspaper here in Portland, and I got a call from a contact of mine in the U.S. attorney's office who said you're going to want to be in mag court this is the magistrates court this is the you know the where they bring in the freshly arrested folks every afternoon at 1:30 p.m. and I said great what's what's going on he said really really can't tell you <laughs> I said what do you mean you can't tell me and he said um there's a it's a national security case I said hey uh, you got 10 minutes and uh, he said yeah so I jo- literally jogged over to the courthouse and um and met with him and he showed me uh, a story, uh, that appeared in 1998. Um, I, I think it was GQ magazine, uh, by David Wise, who, you know, is sort of the Dean of American Spy Writers. He's no longer with us, but it was a terrific piece that laid out, and it, he had an actual interview with Jim, um, which was, uh, uh, one of the last ones Jim would be allowed to do. And, um, so... I went back to the office and uh, banged out uh, a story with about a four-hour head start on everybody else in the world, and so I had a very authoritative piece the next day. Um, And just as as, as a side note to this, I got a call the next day when the story ran from a producer in Hollywood who would later get the get this story optioned, uh, the book anyway, uh, and, uh, and the stories I wrote in the Oregonian uh, uh, was optioned for motion pictures with Paramount and uh, um, Cross Creek pictures, though it never really went anywhere. The scripts uh, were not great.
0: <laughs> so the book is called A Spy's Son. It's about um, uh, U.S. uh, spy uh, Jim Nicholson. You wrote the first stories back in 2009. What kind of reaction did you get? Um,
1: It was pretty immediate. Um, I was besieged with calls from other newspapers. I do recall that. But the one thing that happened that was really interesting is I did get this call from this producer. And um, he and I formed a kind of a a team. And ultimately... um, he said, listen, you you are you going to write a long form narrative on this? You know, and I, I said, well, that's what I i do. I mean, that's you know, I'm an investigative reporter, but I like to you know, I like to do a lot of sort of investigative lock picking to get at a really good story. And so uh, he encouraged me to really get to know, you know, the son um, and and Jim. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Jim was not allowed to speak with me. I sent him a couple of letters and uh, ultimately, um, I didn't get those letters from Jim. Uh, and I only got photocopies from the FBI because they were seized as evidence uh, in, the, in the second criminal case.
0: So you mentioned that you were never able to uh, interview uh, Jim Nicholson. What kind of obstacles did you run into with the U.S. government? Uh,
1: they were multiple. <laughs> multiple obstacles. Um, the Jim had signed two count them two, um plea agreements uh, during his uh, sordid career in espionage um, where um, he uh, agreed that if he were to give an interview and he did, he gave Katie Couric an interview and some other people, I uh, did a couple of other broadcast interviews, I believe um, he, um, he wound up, um, uh, being shut down on those interviews ultimately, but he had to have a CIA officer in the room with him uh, as part of the plea agreement. And so, I immediately, you know, wrote to Jim. I mean, within days of my very first story coming out, and there were dozens, I think, of stories before it was all over with in the Oregonian, following every every development in this uh, the father son case. Um, and uh, ultimately, Jim uh, Jim was uh, forbidden uh, by the prison system because, uh, there's this, uh, this pesky little law for journalists called Pell versus Pecuniae. I think that's, I'm pronouncing it correctly. And it, it basically gives the wardens of U.S. prisons, um, the, uh, full authority to decide who gets in the prison and who does not. And media in the federal prison system rarely, rarely get in for interviews. And, uh, and for, in this particular case, because, you know, he was a guy with a clearance, I think that was probably bad. On top of that, uh, the attorney general, Eric Holder Jr. at the time, uh, became kind of a thorn in my butt because uh, he decided that um, he was going to issue what's known as a special administrative measure, which is a U.S. attorney. uh, It was an attorney general privilege that basically shuts down uh, someone's right to speak to anyone but A handful of people. In Jim's case, I think there are five people, six people who can phone him, and for very short periods of time, and very limited. And so, I I was shut down. Uh, The the intention was to keep me from interviewing him. I'm I'm certain of that.
0: And then in two thousand eleven, you wrote another series for the Oregonian called The Spy's Kid. Right. Uh, What um, determined and and when did you decide to uh, turn all this into a book?
1: Well, um, I was really lucky. I'll I'll tell you, there was um, a gentleman named Brian Kelly, who is well known to your membership, um, who phoned me out of the blue uh, and said, I've been reading your stories in the Oregonian. Uh, I really like the way you write and I really love these stories. And uh, he says, you're making a couple of little mistakes. You're calling them CIA agents. And this was early on. And uh, I, and he schooled me and basically became my sensei of all things uh, spy-like. And, uh, and we became friends. And unfortunately, um, uh, when um, uh, in 2011, I was scheduled to speak with Brian at the, uh, at the spy museum. Uh, he was going to talk about, um, I think, the Walker spy case. And I was going to talk about um, uh, the Nicholson spy cases. And... Um, we um, unfortunately he passed away just just before that, but he was. I still have reams of emails from him on guidance on on how to do this story. It was a, he was a heck of a help. I'm, I'm still in touch with his wife Trish.
0: Nice. So, two separate cases were leveled against uh, Jim Nicholson for uh, espionage against the United States. What kind of a character was he?
1: So. I've come to some opinions and some theories. Um, and I, I, without ever having sat in a room with Jim, I will say that based on voluminous records and, and uh, interviews he has given, uh, Jim's a bit of a narcissist. I, I labored uh, for a time under the misapprehension that, uh, that Jim was uh, maybe a psychopath you know, uh, thinking only of himself and, and you know, moving the world that way in that sort of sinister psychopath way. And uh, I, I, I did talk to a couple of um, uh, experts in the field, uh, one of whom was a CIA officer, former CIA officer, uh, Mark Sageman. Um, and, um, you know, both of these guys said, Jim is an extreme narcissist. And so, uh, based on you know their evidence and their reading of my stories and so forth, and so that's that's uh, what I would say. He, and as as the um, uh, assistant U.S. attorney Ethan Knight said um, in the second case, he said this is a man uh, who wakes up every day thinking of Jim Nicholson and only Jim Nicholson. And I think uh, I, you know, based on the evidence, I would say that he certainly thinks about himself uh, and his place in the world a lot, and he has a very large ego.
0: Given your understanding of the second case, what could possibly have prompted uh, Jim Nicholson's son, Nathan, to um, cooperate with his father and pass information to the SVR?
1: Well, I think I have to take you back to a day in November uh, 1996, the day that Jim was arrested. Um, uh, His son, Nathan, was 12 years old, and he and his sister, Star, and their uncle, Rob, uh, Jim's brother uh, had, uh, taken, uh, Jim to the airport in Jim's minivan and, um, and he was, uh, about to be arrested on the tarmac there, uh, by Steve Hooper, agent Steve Hooper, uh, and that crew, uh, in a really cool, uh, arrest, uh, uh, operation. And so, um, he, um, I've forgotten what the question, I, I'm sorry, I've just lost complete track of what where What
0: motivated was Nathan?
1: Oh, yeah. So later that day, um, you know, two FBI agents showed up at the doorstep. And Nathan, you know, bumped downstairs. I think he was playing with a Sega video game or something, and and came downstairs and opened the door, and they said, We want to talk to your to your uncle. Um uh and uh or wanted wanted to talk to somebody. And so he his uncle Rob came out and chatted with them, and that, you know, that very day, um you know the children were taken out of the house. the house was turned upside down they they cut into the roof and this the you know the walls and everything else to find evidence of of jim's espionage um and uh of course they'd already um uh rented no they purchased the house next door to run surveillance operations on jim electronic ones so uh they were keeping pretty close tabs on him anyway but um They did take Jim, uh, excuse me, they did take uh, Nathan and his sister Star um, to a hotel. And um, it was, I think the rest of his life, I think Nathan had just a whole bunch of questions uh, about, you know, his relationship with his dad. And I think to this day uh, that that relationship is in a is in a um, uh, a sad place, actually, um, because this is a boy who really. Uh, lost his father in 1996 to espionage. So in answer to your question, I think when Nathan was visiting his dad in the uh, prison visiting room, uh, I think he was deeply depressed. I think he was certainly having uh, some serious uh, depression or sadness, certainly, um, um, about what had happened to him. And what had happened to Nathan was um, in about 2004, I believe it was, uh, he had uh, been trying to... uh, do what his dad did become an army ranger and so he was going uh, he was hoping to get into ranger training and he was taking basic training and on his very 13th uh parachute jump uh out of a perfectly good C130 uh he wound up uh having an accident uh the the uh, parachute had been rolled improperly it was what they call a, um a cigarette roll it didn't quite fully inflate it was more of a narrow thing uh and so he didn't get the lift and unfortunately hit the ground very hard and broke a, a small bone in his uh back in uh, near his uh tuchus, his butt and uh so uh nathan was uh, had a disability from the army washed out of the army he was deeply depressed about this and at one point suicidal there's a scene in the book about that um but so i think when he wound up at the prison uh and was visiting his dad and his dad came up with this plan uh, to reach back out and uh, use Nathan as a courier, uh, he Nathan was in a very vulnerable place. I think, and uh, I think he would tell you that. And uh, what Nathan needed to do um, was, you know, develop a relationship with his dad. You know, re- rekindle that relationship and and keep it going. And uh, and he also needed his dad because he was really wounded by this whole. Um, you know, washing out of the army thing, he was sort of, sort of a sort of a hot mess uh, there for a short time, and at a time when he really needed his dad's guidance and hugs and all the things that we need from our fathers, uh, Jim uh, gave him those things, and uh, in my opinion, recruited his son like any garden variety asset he might have uh, worked any um, you know in, in around the world, and. Sent him into the breach, uh,
0: Brian. You touched on it lightly, but um, what is their relationship like today?
1: Well, there is no relationship, uh, Nathan. Uh, under the um, under the agreement that Nathan made in in, prison, uh, in court, let me let me start over. It, Nathan made an agreement in court in which he said uh, he was willing not to speak to his father. Um, it was later codified uh, by the court that, that Nathan could have no contact with his dad. And, uh, so Jim has a, just a very few people he can really speak to. And, and Nathan is not one of them. And that will be true. I believe until Nathan, excuse me, until Jim gets out of the uh, Supermax in Florence, Colorado, uh, here in just a couple of years
0: how was the second case of espionage through the sun nathan discovered and uh, how did the fbi respond
1: it's the strangest thing you know it's that that uh that uh, <laughs> pesky pesky cia you know uh there was an analyst or analysts uh, who were uh all of jim's phone calls uh between anybody he spoke to not only were recorded by the Prison system, the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. They were also recorded by the CIA, and so analysts there were listening to his uh, every utterance he made. And you'd think that uh, that would be a hard way to, you know, figure out whether he was doing something wrong. But in one case, uh, once he had Nathan on the road, and Nathan was returning from San Francisco, and there's this really sort of telling snippet of that phone call where Jim says hey son how are you doing and he says doing fine pa doing fine uh and he says uh, uh he's, he said i really i really enjoyed meeting them or something like that I, I you know had they were nice people and uh what he was referring to of course is the the two russian SVR officers that he met in the uh the san francisco consulate now closed and ultimately um, uh, he said, uh, said made a sale for uh 5k and he was re- trying to make it sound like it was his booming insurance sales. Uh, Nathan was a really lousy insurance salesman. In fact, he was lousy because he couldn't sell elderly people on insurance policies because he didn't feel he, he didn't feel right doing it. And so he, I think he made a couple very small sales at one point, but, um, uh, that was sort of Nathan,
0: uh, Well, it's an amazing story, and uh, it's great to get it firsthand from the uh, researcher and writer who did all the work. The name of the book is The Spy's Son by Brian Denson, and uh, I encourage you all to take a look at it. And I want to thank Brian for a very interesting interview.
1: Very happy to do it. Thank you very much, Jim.